Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Cody Jung. Cody is a paracyclist and he went to the Tokyo Paralympics and came fourth in the time trial and 16th in the road race. So welcome to the podcast, Cody. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to ha- ahead of our conversation. So Cody, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment and how you came to be a paracyclist? Yeah, well, so I, yeah, I was born with, with uh, cerebral palsy in the form of hemiplegia on the left side of my body. So it affects mainly my left arm and leg, pretty, pretty mild to the casual observer, but a PT could notice it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was fortunate to have parents who were pretty active growing up. And so despite what maybe, maybe doctors or healthcare workers had told them when I was born, mm-hmm. they were pretty adamant about getting me outside and getting me involved with physical therapy from a young age. So I, I played, you know, all different kinds of sports throughout growing up, you know, from, from baseball to, to soccer to even I, I did a couple seasons of rugby and a season of wrestling in high school. Mm. So, yeah, it was good to be active. Obviously, there was always, some, you know, a little something usually mechanical or technical that I had trouble getting around, whether it was, you know, flipping my, my left hand over to catch grounders in baseball mm. or staying on my feet in rugby, mm. <laughs> not getting concussions. But <laughs> there was always a little a little thing. And in college, I, I kind of like found the bike. I had a buddy who, who started riding and that got me into it. And I really found that the bike was a great tool for me to kind of a- apply what athleticism I had, mm-hmm. but in a, in a platform that, that made sort of the other limitations I had physically and other activities kind of, kind of moot. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be that much better of a cyclist if I didn't have cerebral palsy, just yeah. because of how much more two-dimensional the bike is. So that would have been when I started cycling. That would have been, uh, man, almost it's 2002 now. I was a junior in college, so I think that was 2013. Mm-hmm. Wow, almost almost 10 years ago. Yeah, and I just really fell in love with it. It was awesome to have a sport where uh, I really, I very quickly found that I was able to not only just keep up with everyone else, but you know, if I put in the work and went to bed earlier than my roommates and <laughs> ate more salads or whatever, I you know I could go faster. Yep. So that yeah, it was a great. It's been a great thing. So that's kind of how I got into the got into the sport. Cool. And so, what's your classification in paracycling? I am a C four. Okay. And yeah. you predominantly focused on the road rather than the track, as some C fours will do both. Was there a particular reason for that? You know, when I started cycling, you know the uh, the buddies and I that had started riding together in college, it was a great engine for us to like get out of the classroom or get out of our dorm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we back then, you know, we just go ride to a lake yeah. or we'd say, let's go ride to that, you know, let's go ride to this fast food place that's 20 miles away mm-hmm. and then ride back. And it was this big, like kind of outdoor adventure. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have kind of like that traditional, you know, sort of like fundamental track school yeah. Or, you know, because a lot of kids will start, especially if they live in the city, 
the safest place to ride bikes is the velodrome. <laughs> and so they'll start up riding there. You see a lot of top riders start out on the track. And, you know, maybe from a performance perspective, I, there's some part of me that kind of wishes I had started on the track. But I really, one of the things I fell in love most with about cycling was being outside. Yeah. And the bike became this great tool that took away a lot of limits for me when it came to experiencing the outdoors. Yeah. And so by the time I had started sort of competing just in little local races and events, you know, I was so already kind of developing to a road cyclist that mm -hmm. by the time I heard of the track, you know, it just reminded me of wrestling again, like, Oh, we're going to go back inside pretty much a gym yep. with, you know, breathing artificial air and, <laughs> and going around in circles. I'm like, that's not why I like to ride. So fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of it for me. You know, I did a couple track races and kind of tried to get into it, but I really with track, like, man, even at the, even with the more endurance sort of events, like the, uh, like the pursuit, the start in that, that standing start is in itself is such an explosive effort. And so I always kind of had trouble with that really hard, intense, you know, split second neuromuscular effort that it was, it just, you know, I was never really good enough on the track. I felt like to justify, but that said, I never put in the amount of work that one might to get really good. So yeah, that's, that that's kind of why the, I think the biggest reason is because I love being outdoors. Okay. So what would a typical training week have looked like for you in the lead up to Tokyo? Oh man, <laughs> those were big old, big old weeks. Mm. Um, so we didn't do, you know, I was fortunate uh, enough to kind of have a port system those couple of years leading into Tokyo where I didn't, I didn't uh, like work part time on the side and was able to train full time. Mm -hmm. So I really kind of had, we didn't schedule our training uh, or my coach Ben Day, awesome, awesome guy. And also fellow Australian, <laughs> as you know, we, we kind of had the freedom to schedule our training apart from the normal like seven day uh, work week. Mm -hmm. So we would do three day blocks where you would do, you're on the bike every day, but every fourth day usually would be a, a rest day where you do like hour, hour and a half, you know, short spin. Mm -hmm. And then so the first day of the block, you do your most, your highest quality work or intervals. So leading up to Tokyo, we did a lot of kind of like VO2 max effort level, but in a big gear. Mm -hmm. So you might do like five or six times four minutes at, you know, whatever VO2 max is. So for me, maybe around like 400 watts mm -hmm. at like 50 RPM. So really big muscular effort. Yeah. And then the but next day, but low cadence, but low cadence. Yeah. yeah. Really kind of stressing a lot of systems at once. Mm -hmm. Then the that second day we do still an interval, but maybe a lower quality. So it may have been like uh, earlier on in the training period, like further out from Tokyo, we might do like a big, you know, like uh, an hour at like tempo mm -hmm. or maybe like a uh, kind of an over under set where you do like three or you know, two times 20 minutes, you know, right below threshold where every, every few minutes you'd spike, mm -hmm. you'd spike over for 30 seconds, something like that. And yep. then you'd finish up, you'd finish up that third day with maybe a, uh, like four to six hour long ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you'd, we kind of repeated that. So usually in one week, I think my biggest weeks 
before Tokyo were probably like, I had like four weeks that were over 20 hours and the biggest one was probably 25. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty tired at the end of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. And you know, I was, I, yeah, I was really kind of watching the weight and probably if I were to do it again, I would try to have watched it less Mm -hmm. because, you know, definitely I was doing these big blocks and, and I didn't really think about weight at all the rest of the season because all of our qualifying races before that were all flat. So it wasn't like a big deal, but then Tokyo definitely had some elevation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the best way. I don't know. And as you know, Liz, there's so many different like ways and timetables that people use to approach race weight. Yep. Um, but for me, it kind of made more sense to wait and see if I made the Tokyo team before I really started stressing about that or worrying about it. But at the same time, we're doing these big training blocks. I was kind of pinching off the the extra mm-hmm. calories or nutrition, as it were. So mm. that w- yeah, it it got pretty tiring. And definitely, I tr- what I tried to do is like the biggest day would have the biggest ride probably for what I was doing in the day I'd fuel the least and then use the rest day as a day to kind of catch Mm -hmm. up like almost catch up all the way because basically when you're doing you know even on the interval days it was still a three hour on the bike so you're doing every day you're doing over 2,000 kjs and you know probably in that three-day period you're you're over you're over 10,000 kjs in three days so Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely pretty fatiguing. But I was at such a point, at such a level already that, that first of all, that like that block routine was uh, pretty ingrained and normal to me. And I was, you kind of know how you're mm-hmm. going to feel on each day during the training block. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I, I did feel like I had it pretty dialed because I was able to recover just as much as I needed to for the next bit. But you'd be pretty cooked after a week like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the bike, what is the limitation with your CP? So your left side is it's left arm and and left leg that's affected. Where do you notice it the most on the bike? Yeah, so for me, the biggest thing I notice is in more like technical ability. Mm-hmm. So p- power wise, power wise is probably a forty sixty split, which really considering. You know, like if, if you were going to have me do a single leg squat, yep. you know, you, you know, from the full, like the full squat position, mm-hmm. there'd be a big difference between my right and left leg. But on the bike, just because of that already like semi what contracted position your leg is in, it takes a lot of that mm-hmm. um, stability out of the equation. And so my power, my power split was always fairly even for for what I had going on. And so the, my biggest, my biggest struggle was, was technical ability. Mm-hmm. So that being more like my, my upper body and its ability to kind of control the bike. Like I think for, for yeah. me, I was a pretty good bike handler. I came a long way from where I started when I started riding bikes. Like yeah. when I started, uh, I could, I had to put my foot down just to grab a, 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 bo- a bottle or a, a, a beaten a Biden um, yep. um, to bidden to, to get some water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I came a long way to being able to like eat and drink while riding, yep. but that was always, for me, that was the biggest setback. And, you know, even something now I still have, I'm, I'm still working on, like, I think that's the biggest, 
link in the chain for me mm-hmm. was that just the hand the bike handling part. And and you said to me just earlier that in Tokyo, so you came forth in the time trial, and that was obviously a, a, a hilly, but also quite a technical course. And you felt that you were actually really good on the hills. You actually the two people who were ahead of you on the time trial, you did better in the hills, but the technical sections were what you kind of fell behind a little bit on. Yeah. Yeah. Actually there was, so big George Peasegood, who was third, he was actually right behind me. He was my minute man or I was his minute man, I guess Uh in the Mm -hmm. TT and Sarah Hammer, who was one of who she was in the car Mm -hmm. during the time trial in the, in the closing, you know, Ks of the race, basically on the, on, on, on a descent. George would come, you know, within maybe 50 meters of my wheel. Mm. And then as soon as we'd hit a flat section or uphill, she said I'd pull away and like gain, gain most of that time back. Mm. But eventually there was just so much windy and so much downhill on that course. It outweighed how it it still outweighed how much like climbing or flat power stretches there were. And so he, he still ended up beating me, you know, he made up that minute and more on me and you know first second third place were pretty close and so she estimated based on him and me that i that i lost a minute or more (laughs) which is kind of hard to think about you know kind of uh, kind of gutsy to think about it but a minute or more just based on the on the technical and descending side of things which kind of a tough pill to swallow but also made me feel good about about you know, my performance and the work I did Yeah, good. on the physiological side. So yeah, there's, there's, there's always, there's always things that, to work on. Right. But mm-hmm. that was, yeah, that's definitely, I think the biggest, the biggest thing I faced. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing about bike racing. It's not like running or, or rowing or something like the, the, the strongest person, you know, doesn't, doesn't always necessarily always, win. always win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about your nutrition because one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is that you're vegan. And so where did the choice to be vegan start from? Yeah, so it was it was like one of the first big decisions I made for our family when my wife Evelyn and I got married. I think it was maybe like a month or two after after we got married. But I I think I've always probably had some I like in my mind, at least as a as a kid or a preteen, mm-hmm. I was a little bit a little bit chunky, a little bit chubby, and <laughs> I think I like I've always kind of had body image issues, and I mm-hmm. it, it always has kind of felt like something that was outside of my hands or outside of my control. Yeah, you know, just because you had, especially being in college, like you know, if your friends, if you guys, if you were up till midnight studying. And your friends wanted to go get a burrito at one, like you would just go. And so it kind of felt like a lot of the things I ate or the habits that I had, I didn't decide for myself or I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like everyone did like did these things. And some kids, some kids were able to stay, you know, trim or a healthy weight. And then, you know, other kids didn't respond well to that and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, you know, either gained weight or didn't, weren't as healthy or, that that sort of thing. So I think that was something that had, was always kind of on my mind. And you know, early on, this was also early on in my cycling career because mm-hmm. Evelyn and I got married in two thousand. 
2015. Mm-hmm. And so that same year, I just kind of like, uh, <laughs> you're probably going to hate this, Liz. I don't know if you've heard of Durian Rider. On, on, he's like a big like vegan YouTuber. Not not really good sound advice at all. <laughs> I'm not telling anyone. But like, he's a big like personality and like one of these big like vegan spokesperson. So I'd seen some of his vids because he had mm-hmm. like had these catch all titles like stuff that cyclists do or what you know and naming them like that so when you're a young impressionable person who's getting who's getting into something new like cycling you're always you're you're just trying to absorb things Mm -hmm. and so that's actually where i kind of heard about like or i actually considered being vegan and so then i did some of my own research like the stuff like the the china study and the stuff that like esselstyn and campbell did like those big those big authors Mm -hmm. and just kind of learn for myself what some of this research pointed to and meant. And so I think initially for me, because of some of the, the correlations that they found between diet and like Western diseases, like, you know, heart disease and cancer, mm-hmm. how there's a potential for there to be some, some connection between those things and having had family members that had died of cancer and, and heart disease, mm-hmm. both myself and Evelyn, that was, that's something that was, that kind of hit home for, for both of us. And that's mm-hmm. when we kind of made the decision to, Hey, let's, let's give this, a, give this a try. And at the time I wasn't what I would call a very high level of an athlete at all. And so it was more just kind of like a lifestyle decision. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was, that was almost seven, seven years ago now. So now it's mm-hmm. kind of like a second, you know, that's just, it's kind of how we, how we live. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't yep. see it, you know, any different, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started. And so did you find any challenges with that when you were racing and when you were traveling uh, with the national team? Well, not too much because I had you for most of that. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no, no um, I, I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't start. I think my first trip with the national team was 2017. Mm-hmm. So it would have been two years on. And then the first full season I did as a member of the national team, it was 2018 mm-hmm. or two, maybe 2018 to 2019. So by then, by then I had, you know, I'd been eating, you know, kind of a vegetarian diet uh, for quite a bit, you know, for a couple of years and had gone through that initial, like, how do I, you know, what do I get at the grocery store? What are, what are my, what are my staples? Mm-hmm. What kind of protein powder should you you know, should you eat? And so it was, it wasn't too bad. I think honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't too worried about it until it was like, I think it was someone else on the national team. And then a couple cycling buddies that I have just here at home, you know, they were, they all knew I was planning to go to a work, you know, these world cups. And they're like, dude, so what are you going to eat? What are you going to eat over there? And I was like, well, I food, (laughs) I hope. Um, um, But it was actually because of those things, I was like, you know, maybe I should reach out to, you know, some of the team USA staff and see what they have. Mm-hmm. Cause I assumed, I assumed they would, they would have a rice cooker. And I think I remember emailing Aaron Popovich or talking to her at some prep camp or something. And I was like, do you guys have a rice cooker, right? And she was like, I'm not sure. <laughs> there might be one in our like storage warehouse in Belgium. I'll make sure we buy one. And yeah. I was, I, that was kind of mind boggling to me. Just because I was like, does it? Because by that time I had read all this, you know, literature about cyclists on the world tour and how the teams cook and 
it's all that, you know, in the kitchens, they always have a rice cooker. So I just assumed it. So I think, I think I am to be credited for the rice cooker that you are the U.S. To, paracycling are, team it, now has. It was purchased yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. And I, maybe I'm the only one to this day who's ever used it, but it's been well used. Yeah. Um, Welcome to the world of U.S. Yeah. Paralympics and, and pretty much most Paralympics. We don't oh, cook for yeah. everyone where well, we're traveling. Yeah, it was it was eye opening, and you know maybe we'll get into this later. But and I think p- part of and tell me if this is too much of a tangent, but I think part of it was I started in cycling as a fully able bodied cyclist. Mm-hmm. Like when I started riding a bike and even racing, I didn't know there was like Paralympics or mm-hmm. paracycling, and so coming into it from that perspective, my idea of like pros and what you know, professional cyclists did was all from that able-bodied <laughs> side. And, yep. and so, you know, and even, you know, you have amateurs who are, who are counting, you know, every ounce of food they eat or that, yeah, they're going out and buying rice cookers or they're mm-hmm. drinking beet juice or, you know what I mean? They're like, yeah. they, they don't, they won't even like look at soda. You know what I mean? Like they'd rather drink rat poison than a Coca-Cola like that, you know, the, that kind of thing. <laughs> And then I go to like this World Cup and first of all, I'm like, dude, everyone here is just eating what the hotel gives them. Or like, you know, I remember I th- the first time I saw like Tom Davis, I didn't introduce myself to him. And for those who don't know, he's another athlete. He recently retired, but mm-hmm. good buddy on the on the national team. But the first time I saw him, he was like ordering a, you know, a huge latte in, at like the airport Starbucks. And I was like, <laughs> that guy's that guy's like an, one of the best athletes I've heard on this team. And he's just, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it was just a different eye-opening perspective that, oh, like, first of all, to be a top athlete, you don't have to like, maybe a lot of people are making money off of books on all this really detailed, mm-hmm. dialed in nutrition. So there was that. But yeah. then it was also like, is there some disconnect here between what most para-athletes are doing and what people on the able-bodied side are doing? And I don't know, maybe that's something we'll get into, but- Anyway, to, to to circle back, I didn't think it was too tough. I think I think there were some maybe like teammates and stuff that I don't know, they like tried to give me a hard time about it, but mm-hmm. I don't know, like I wasn't too, you know, I wasn't too shabby even those first couple world cups. Yeah. Like I think I think my performances and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I do think they kind of like spoke for themselves. But also you can't attribute those only to diet, especially with a sport like bike racing where there's so many variables that go into a good performance and so many uncontrollables. But yeah, it was, you know, I, I didn't expect, I think the good thing was I didn't expect too Mm -hmm. much. Like the, the rice cooker thing was a surprise, but you know, I, I was like, as long as you guys can find like some cans of beans <laughs> and we can, yeah, a rice cooker is great. And there's, there's bread and I'll bring a jar of peanut butter mm-hmm. and some protein powder. I'll, I'll make it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. What was your primary source of protein when you were traveling? Because, and, and did you find that easy? Because I think, you know, back in the day and, and going back, if you went to a lot of countries overseas and said that you were vegan, they would have looked at you with a confused look on your face and, and not and probably just serve you up a salad with no protein source in it. Oh, and that's happened. Um, that's so, happened plenty of times. Yeah. So so was that easy to always find a protein source or or really were you just making sure that you always had a backup plan? Yeah, I 
and that was that was something I think you helped out with a lot too. But always just have like not I think and that's something one of the things you learn, I think for a lot of people who and I think it's easier now to transition maybe to a to a plant based diet than it was a few years mm-hmm. ago. But one thing Evelyn and I learned learned early on is you can't you never know how people are gonna respond to your choice of diet. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had people kind of get offended that you know that we you know eschewing uh animal protein Mm -hmm. and so we've learned we had already learned by that point like if we're going to go to a function or something like that it doesn't hurt to like be prepared or if we're going to go to a wedding let's just get dinner before just in case Mm -hmm. you know and if they have stuff that we can that that we'd like to eat then bonus but at least we know we've gotten we've gotten the calories on board and we're good to go and Mm so when it came to traveling for those things yeah, I'd always make sure to bring, you know, like some sort of bars, like a trail mix that I liked. Yeah, like a, a, a vegan protein powder that I could mix with water or milk, mm-hmm. a jar of almond or peanut butter. And and having that allowed you to not stress about it. Because, you know, I I think my preference a lot of times is to get it from like a whole food yeah. source. But yeah, you never know if that's going to be a possibility or not. And honestly, like, as a pre-mace meal, some some penne with tomato sauce and then a little chocolate protein shake afterwards. That's a great that that goes down great, you know. That's not bad. So that's yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I did. And then you always surprised. Like I think Holland is also called the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah the they Netherlands. were always awesome. Like the the last time, so Worlds in 2019, like they had they had like impossible burgers, you know, there for mm-hmm. me, like. And the, the people, the hosts of the hotel were just absolutely stoked to like try to figure out, you know, what, what this, what this like weird American <laughs> vegan could eat. And so lots of t- more often than not, I ran into people who are really happy to try to, it was like a challenge. Mm-hmm. So challenge for them to find something for me. So that was, yeah, it, I'm, I feel fortunate that it worked out, yeah. but it was, yeah, it never hurt to be prepared for sure. <laughs> and how was how about Tokyo itself? How was that? Because we certainly were, were more restricted in Tokyo in terms of we couldn't go out to a supermarket and just pick up something that we needed. So yeah. how was Tokyo itself for you? Um, so Tokyo, like the uh, uh, like great thing was they had amazing rice. And as a lover of rice, someone who eats a lot of rice, mm-hmm. and then they had tofu. Yep. It was silken tofu, and I'm definitely a more like super firm tofu guy but they they had they had a good they had lots of good stuff to eat lots of fresh vegetables every meal Mm -hmm. they usually had some sort of some sort of bean dish and then yeah again with tokyo Mm -hmm. since i knew we were going to be so kind of so much more restricted i made sure to bring my own you know food essentials and i brought Mm -hmm. i mean you guys did a good job at like scouring for things out there which was awesome <laughs> but i probably brought like a pound yeah that's down we on were, the we were met, we, on the I have no idea. Yeah. i have no idea how they were obtained but somehow they were <laughs> but i even brought probably like a pound of oatmeal maybe half a pound like i had i had a full store and then like a couple bags of granola you know like so i would i i probably could have done close to a week of eating on my own on what I just brought. So that was, yeah. yeah, that was good. But yeah. So can you remember back when we first started working together, what were some of the messages that I gave you in terms of the, the dietary changes? Because at that time you were trying to get leaner 
and and Cody, you're not a big guy in the first place, but <laughs> you you were trying to get a little bit leaner. So can you remember back what some of the things we talked about at that point in time were? Yeah, so it was it was fun to work with you on it because I think like at least on the paracycling team, I don't know if you had too many athletes who are on a similar sort of like dietary plan or no, whatever. You, as you, were my, you were my first. first. Yeah, so that, <laughs> it was kind of fun to sort of work on it together. Because I, when I mm-hmm. when I first stepped into your office, you you were like pretty concerned about like the protein side of things, mm-hmm. and you could probably remember that I wasn't. Yeah. And so we kind of learned together like what we could do to sort of sort of sort of balance that. Mm-hmm. And I remember I asked you to make, and this was probably a little bit later on. I think it was during like the lockdowns, right? Yeah. Or maybe, yeah, that you like had that nice little that nice eating plan for me. And so I think I honestly I think one of the things is probably when you're making a plan for someone you're used to having like the full variety available that someone on on a more standard diet would be able to eat and so because i think i remember you kind of saying like it, it just seems like some of the like protein sources are are a little are a little redundant mm-hmm. and that for me that wasn't a problem because i'm kind of used to that you know like some people some people will have like three eggs and bacon in the morning and then chicken sandwich for lunch and then a steak for dinner mm. so they're eating like protein sources yep. from four different you know three different animals or whatever in one day and so when you think about it from that standpoint you're like oh well you're having you know you're having like oats with soy milk for breakfast and then black beans and rice for lunch and then black beans and quinoa yep. for dinner and then like maybe a protein you know what i mean it's just a little bit more but if you look at the protein sources and I think one of the things that helped me was just some of the research I'd done on like greater diet, like stuff like the, you know, the China study and stuff where you see a lot of these big portions of the world where, of course, people don't have access to first world grade healthcare, mm-hmm. but where they're generally pretty lean. And maybe part of that is because of malnutrition. They simply don't have enough calories. Mm-hmm. But what you do notice is they're eating like a similar protein source day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where, where, and I, and sometimes I kind of wonder, maybe that consistency is pretty good because we worry a lot about like variety and probably in, in, in Western countries, variety to like a, a point where it's almost a fault mm-hmm. because we're so worried about getting so much in, but in everything else, especially with being an athlete, it's all about consistency, yep. like sleep the same amount every night, consistently train, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out keep that as consistent as possible. And I think in a way it's been sort of a help, Mm -hmm. you know, having, having a diet that has kind of a little like smaller amount of total options because you can kind of be a little bit consistent. And of course you want variety of nutrients, Mm -hmm. but probably the amount of different foods you have to eat to get that nutrient variety is a lot smaller than it seems like when you walk into a Trader Joe's Mm -hmm. or, you know, your average grocery store. Yeah. Cool. And so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask is when you, when you were trying to get that, that last little bit of time before Tokyo and you said that you were trying to lean down and, and that it was in those big blocks of training, you were putting yourself into an energy deficit mostly on the third day of that block where you were doing a long ride but there wasn't a lot of intensity in there. Was it just that you didn't? bump up your food intake for the total volume of training or did you actually physically change anything in your diet 
<laughs> no, I mean, I probably ate the same food I normally do. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I'm really bad. And you know, from working with me and, and the thing, that, the thing that was fun with working, working with you was like, you weren't too big. Like you weren't going to have me like count calories or weigh food if I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. It was all about kind of like giving me a general idea for what a portion size was. So I had that. Yeah. And I, yeah, for me, like the time, like I've tried doing the calorie tracker mm-hmm. and either I just kind of gave up on it in a couple of days because I knew I wasn't, or at least I thought I wasn't hitting it on the numbers yeah. or I'd be so focused on it as like a numbers oriented cyclist that I'd, I'd set my goal. Like, you know, instead of doing like a 200 calorie deficit per day, I'd be like, oh, well, like <laughs> let's do, more? let's do 600. Right. <laughs> and then in a week you can't, in a week you can't even get out of bed, you know? Yeah. So, so you're like, so you like do it, you almost do it to the nth. So I really kind of went, went by feel. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did with that is I just kind of minimized dessert. And like, <laughs> it's funny, like when I was talking with you about what my desserts are, you're like, Cody, these, are, this isn't like, like dessert, you know? Cause it wasn't like cake. It'd be like, it'd be like <laughs> five or six dates with like peanut butter. And for most people. Dates. Yes, you, you, yeah. you and dates were, were they're, definitely they're a, a good, big yeah, item. They're, like, <laughs> they're good because they're pretty much candy, but they grow on a tree, so they're not candy. <laughs> no, but but you know, or something like that, or like my dessert would be like a bowl of cereal or something. But pr- pretty much what I did is hmm. I stopped having that, and it was hard. It was mm-hmm. like pretty difficult the first especially with that higher with that intense and high training load that top off is something your body really like gets used to and it's habitual Mm -hmm. but is also something you notice when you take away at first but that was kind of the main thing i did and then like at our at our training camp which was one of the bigger volume weeks i did uh, like the tokyo camp which was probably a month and a half out or maybe a month out yeah at, at that big camp, what I did is they had pretty big plates and it was kind of buffet style. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do is I would basically put as much on the plate as I could fit reasonably. So pretty good amount. But then I would be like, this is my one plate. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of kept it to that. Yeah. And then still eating a ton on the bike. Yeah. So I was doing like easily 80 to 90 grams of carbs an hour. And that was even on the, even on the easier rides, Mm -hmm. just because I wanted to like keep my body used to processing that amount. And also if you're training that much, you don't want to bomb. You don't want to be in that hole. And so you kind of learn there's a time to do it. But sorry to answer your question, as far as what I actually ate, it didn't, it didn't really change. And I I, I tried to be careful about just not eating enough. But what I did do is I would I basically tried to take away things that looked like they were a little bit extra. So the main thing was was that like late night or you know after dinner mm-hmm. after dinner dessert or snack. Or if it was a big day, I would sub it out for like a couple scoops of protein powder yeah. and mm-hmm. milk or something. Yeah, it would be that. And then also I guess trying to watch my snacking in between meals. Yeah. Like if you can it's pretty crazy if you can keep yourself to just 3 meals a day mm-hmm. without this sort of mindless snacking how much you can like trim off yourself. Mm, yep. And, and you were always one for, for grazing yeah. rather than necessarily having. Yeah. Probably meals. I'd be more of like a, probably more of like a horse or a 
water buffalo than a lion <laughs> if I was an animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And I guess right now you're doing some running instead of cycling, yeah. just having a little bit of time off the bike and and, and you've gone back to, to college and uh, mm-hmm. studying PT. So yeah. how's that going for you at the moment? You know, I'm, I'm really, well, at the moment, at the moment we, we discussed, I'd kind of fallen into a bit of an injury. It's like it happened while running, but I wouldn't say it's running specific. So it's just because I fell yeah, um, and, and yeah. busted my yeah. knee a little bit. So th- that's Tripped not over. fun. And it's funny, like I never really got injured per se as a cyclist. So this is a whole new mm-hmm. world for me. But one of the things that's been great is the lower amount of stress. So it basically, when I decided that I needed a, a little bit of a break from from the bike, I, I got right into running and I wasn't running a much in like runner standards. Mm-hmm. I did probably a month at like 25, uh, like 40, 40 to 50 K a week. Mm-hmm. And dude, in that month I got down to my normal, I was probably like around like 164, 165 mm-hmm. and my normal race weight when I was really fit, I think was just under 160. So like 158, 159. And so I got, I got down to like 159, 160 in a month of running. And when I thought about it, I was like, this can't be the running. It can't be just that. And then I thought, you know what? I'm way less stressed. Mm. Like I'm sleeping. Like my cortisol levels aren't raised. Like I'm not hot all the time. And so I honestly wonder, and it made, you know, it just, it was, it's been interesting to kind of think about like, you can like train a lot, but if your body's so stressed that, and I don't know, I don't know the exact mechanisms, but I think if you have really elevated cortisol levels and your your body is under a lot of hormonal stress, mm-hmm. then it's going to be harder for you to for your body to get get to a healthy weight yeah. or any nutrients you give it. It's it's going to do whatever it can to keep those because your body is kind of like in an emergency mode, and so it doesn't really know when it's going to get what it needs. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, that's been kind of eye opening. Mm-hmm. And to also know that I don't need to, like in order to main, maintain a healthy weight, you don't need to be riding a bike 20 hours a week. Right. <laughs> and it's really easy to get into that yeah. mindset when you're doing it. Yeah. So in a way it's been kind of empowering. And then also just to be mm-hmm. being, to live a little bit more of a normal schedule these past couple months has been so healthy, not only for me, but I think for for Evelyn and, and my daughter, Emmy, mm. it's really good because, you know, my schedule wasn't as crazy as like a world tour riders, but it's still a lot to do, you know, yeah. three or four times a year, a trip of half a month. And then you're always training. And like, no matter how much you talk about it, there's always a little bit of like stress or questioning behind what you eat. Or if you stayed up, you know, an extra 30 minutes to watch a show or like, did I, yeah. you know, did I sleep enough? Oh, I didn't go to the bathroom before this. You know, there's like, so it feels like there's a lot of things to stress about. And even now, like, mm-hmm. you know, last night I was up, you know, I was up till almost 11 doing, doing homework. And I, part of me wanted to be like, oh my gosh, you're not going to get eight hours of sleep. But I'm like, <laughs> well, I need to sleep obviously. But it's like, like, I don't have a reason to be stressed about that. Heck, I'm injured. I'm just going to mm-hmm. sit on the couch tomorrow unless I'm doing homework or trying to wrangle my kid anyway. So (laughs) just to have that. Yeah. yeah, It's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. And really like I was always so bad with off seasons. And even now with this injury, like 
Evelyn would tell you that I've been complaining like <laughs> this whole week about this little thing. So it's, I think it's always hard for, for people who are so used to being active all the time, but for the most part, it's been a really, it's been a really nice little, little change of pace. Well, it's a good learning for you to understand how your patients feel when you're a PT. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I would assume so. And it's a good reminder for me to keep doing, even though you're injured, you know, there's always something you can do yeah. with your, with your body. Yeah. You know, you can still, you can still do a plank or you can, yeah. you know, you can still work on ankle mobility. Yeah. You can still make sure you're laying down instead of just sitting and yeah. shortening your hip flexor. So yeah, there's always something you can, you can, you can work on. It's not all is lost, which <laughs> it's easy to feel like. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, Cody, can you give us a, a couple of recommendations that you give to younger potential paracyclists or just potential para-athletes in general? Uh, number one, if your team does not have a rice cooker, make sure they get a, get you a rice cooker. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm pretty sure we were like the last the last team to have a rice cooker. So, I, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I think what I would say is, and I don't know if this is just U.S. para-athletes and it may be just in paracycling, but if you look at most of the literature, like nutrition plays a big role in sport at the top level. And just because someone's a, you're a para-athlete or a paracyclist doesn't mean you're not top level and you shouldn't think of yourself that way. Mm. So do do your homework. And, and I would say don't worry about what other people do or don't do, especially when it comes to like, oh, like, do you really need to not eat McDonald's three times a week? Well, it's like, yeah, you know, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's not nice because people are like, oh, well, you know, you're a paracyclist, like, does it matter as much? Uh, you know, and, you know, and it's like, of course, like, okay, so what, I'm maybe, maybe I'm racing 40 people instead of 100. So yeah, my talent pool is smaller. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna put in the time to do it, you should do it as well as you can. Yeah. And part of that is considering what you eat. Now, I would say it's really easy to to go too far with that and i have a few times where it's an added stress and Mm -hmm. you're not allowing yourself and you know i actually read an interesting article on uh, it was like trail runner magazine Mm -hmm. and it said it was it had such a catch like an interesting title was like how your healthy diet may be limiting your performance Mm -hmm. and it was kind of about how you could go too far in the other direction by worrying about like nutrient density or getting a ton of fiber or not gaining weight that like a lot of times your body just needs just needs calories and that's something you know getting into running and trail running like with with ultra endurance athlete they'll you know watch what they eat when they can control it but in in the middle of a hundred mile race you know i've been reading stuff about pretty staunch like vegetarian activist type runners just like drinking a pint of ice cream you know halfway through the race <laughs> because they simply need some calories they, they just can't get enough and yeah. so yeah i think don't be afraid to fuel yeah. your body uh, but also don't be afraid to like treat yourself like like an elite athlete mm-hmm. and i think that goes for people who also aren't athletes too i think there's there's something there for everyone yeah so that 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 would be my thing and then also i would say have fun with it. Um, But I also don't know what it's like for paracyclists and athletes from other countries. Like I remember the Australian team, they always seem to have things dialed down, you know, and (laughs) 
And for them, they went straight through like AIS, like the Australian Institute of Sport as well. And I don't know how paired up they were, but that was cool to see. And I'm hoping that's something that, you know, maybe on the US side, that's something to be aspired to because that trickle down doesn't go unnoticed. I mean, like Australia for paracycling, they raked this last summer. Like they they destroyed every classification they had an athlete entered, they, they meddled. So I think stuff like that, you know, and if, if countries want to do well and, and win medals, then you got to focus on that stuff too. And just because you're para athletes doesn't mean there's not marginal gains to be made. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And what about any recommendations that you have for coaches or practitioners like sports psychology, sports medicine, nutrition for working with para athletes? I think, man, I, I, I think the biggest thing is, yeah, I think it goes kind of beyond like just performance and nutrition, but I think coaches and athletes on the para side need to kind of as best as they can instill the importance of what the what the para athletes are doing into them from from like an early stage Mm -hmm. and treat it i think the coaches need to aspire to be elite as well yeah because because the thing is if there's para athletes that are feeling like oh well i don't need to do this or it's okay if i do that because i'm not an able-bodied pro Mm. then there's there's got to be coaches and professionals on the para side who feel the same way about themselves like oh well like because i'm coaching para athletes or because i'm not working with people who are breaking like two hour marathons Mm. stuff like that i can be a little bit more lax or we don't need to worry Mm. focus on these same details and i think just that same message for coaching and staff is like no like if you're if you're gonna do it you might as well do it to the best that you can and so with para we're working with people who have who are who are competing just as hard and i'd like to think most people want to work just as hard Mm -hmm. and so if i think that should be met by staff who want who want the same for their athletes yeah and and i think it's growing i it seems like it gets more and more competitive every year yeah and i don't know if it was just my like what my like class of 2020 in the c4s and the c5s that seemed really tough but it was like there it was hard racing yeah and you know like I've showed other coaches and and like other cyclists on the able-bodied side my numbers. Yeah. You know the numbers I've had to do just to be in you know be in the field or you know and they're like whoa yeah like that's yeah. you know even and, and this goes for like so many levels of paracyclists like if you just took physiologically mm. you know physiology for physiology and took away a lot of the technical side of our of our bodies which kind of makes us para athletes. Mm-hmm. so many of these para athletes are like in the top echelon of uh, talented uh, able-bodied yeah yep. yeah it's yep. just the thing that makes us different is the more biomechanical parts of our of our different mm-hmm. uh, disabilities mm-hmm. yeah so i think that's that's just yeah that's important to keep in mind and i think when you think about it that way yeah it it makes it really motivated to then put in the work and and do a lot yeah um yeah. yeah awesome yeah yeah, great message. Okay, Cody, well, thank you so much. I know Emmy's probably just about to jump up and be a super active little toddler. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll tie it up with one last question. What's your favourite food? Oh, Liz. Man, favourite <laughs> food. 
That is that is tough. I mean, you know what? The someone asked me that question like a few weeks ago, and I actually did say dates. I was like, dates. <laughs> that was what I was predicting going to be. They were, they were like, really? Why? And, <laughs> And I'm like, well, they're like, why not like a burrito or pizza? And I'm like, okay, well, if you frame it like that, to me, that's like a meal. Mm-hmm. But if I, if you ask me a food, I just think of a single food. Yes. But yeah, I guess if it was a meal, I really do like a good overnight oats in the morning. Like mm. any sort of breakfast is good. Evelyn makes really good vegan pancakes. But then a burrito mm-hmm. is good. Like it's hard to ask me what my favorite food is. I'll give you a whole day of, you know, my whole menu for the day. <laughs> But, yeah. yeah, any yeah. food, any food that is vegan. Yeah, yeah. If it's yeah, if it's if it's uh, made out of plants, I'll give it a try. <laughs> cool, yeah. awesome. Thank you so much, Cody. It's been wonderful catching up with you and and having a good chat. And I don't know, I really love your reflections on you know how you how you went and and the things that you did and the choices that you made. So. Well done to you. I hopefully we'll see a bit more from paracycling with you in the future after you've had a little bit of a break and maybe got another qualification under your belt. And, yeah, I wish you all the best and hopefully your knee will get better pretty quick. Yeah, th- thank you, Liz. Yeah, honestly, it's been a dream of mine to be on a podcast as, a, as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts. This has actually been so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So I, anytime, anytime. Awesome. I think Cody's a great example of an athlete who commits 100% to everything that he does and he does his research well and doesn't let the fact that his diet is a little different to the normal population deter him in any way from being able to fulfil his his goals as, a, as an athlete and really do that in a very sensible and pragmatic approach. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And if you'd like to share it with your social media, we'd appreciate that as well. Please join us next time when we talk to Eileen Carey, who is a Paranautic Ski Coach.